The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Shall we begin? Happy birthday, Mission Impossible film franchise. As of this recording, you just celebrated your 25th anniversary. Hard to imagine that you've been going on that long, but as we look back, we can see that as we closed in on the millennium, the long-running James Bond series was feeling tired and tiring to audiences. In the late 90s, new blood was being dropped in the water, Action spy heroes like Jason Bourne and Ethan Hunt were like sharks ready to demonstrate a new way forward into a new millennium. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. While perhaps a bit wobbly getting up on its feet, the Mission Impossible franchise has definitely hit its stride by now, winning over critics and audiences alike. It's Mission Impossible 3 where first-time director J.J. Abrams sets and settles the tone of what the MI franchise should and could become, and we're going to talk about that in this episode of Spies Like Us. Mission Impossible 3 is a 2006 film uh, featuring contemporary events for its time, features the fictional IMF, Impossible Missions Force, unit, and no other enemy factions except for PSH. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman playing a very influential and um, uh, very evil arms dealer. Uh, before we get to the movie, can we chat about the TV series a bit? Sure. Um, I wish, you know, it's just now occurred to me, like, even though I didn't want to talk about it in a lot of detail, because there's so much to talk about about the movie, but I do wish I had gone back and, and watched another episode real quick before this, uh, because I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember liking it a lot uh, when it was Yeah, in I grew up on it, too. It was really cool, like, as a kid, but I haven't uh, gone back and revisited it yet. yet. I have a feeling it's going to hold up but it's just a feeling. Yeah. <laughs> that series was brought to us by Desilu Productions. What? Uh, mm-hmm. No way. You know about them? Tell me about them. What's well, Desi and Lucille? Uh-huh. That was their production company they made after I Love Lucy. Oh, wow. That's, uh, I did not know that. They produced, they produced I Love Lucy. Uh, no, I, I knew that. I knew, yeah, I knew that. But like the, that was like their Desi Lu was their company. Yes, and yeah. um, I had only just recently uh, found out about this myself, uh, listening to some uh, Star Trek podcast, uh, because they also produced Star Trek. Ba, ba, ba. Oh, what? Yeah, the original, <laughs> the original series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, and as that we said, a great piece of trivia. Oh yeah. Isn't it? Um, uh, the, obviously the mission impossible series and also the, the untouchables, uh, which I never watched, but, uh, I did enjoy the movie. Oh, well, there was one in the nineties I watched. That's not theirs. There's gotta be an older untouchables, right? Well here, I guess, I guess 
you know, The Untouchables was based on a TV series from back around the same time as these other TV series that we're talking about here. No, I understand, but I, I think there was another Untouchables TV series in the 90s. Oh, I don't know about that. I just know about the Kevin Costner film. Maybe I am thinking about the movie. Yeah, yeah they did it in 1959. There was another one that started in 87. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Uh, all of these properties are now currently owned by Paramount Pictures. At some point, you know, they sold they sold their little production company. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why, like, Star Trek has Param- or Paramount has Star Trek. Um, Paramount has Mission Impossible. Uh, if I guess they're going to do an I Love Lucy movie that's coming, so I oh, guess wow. I guess that would be under Paramount as well. Like about her, they're doing a I Love Lucy movie. Ooh, I don't know. Oh, I Maybe. hope it's I hope it's the latter. I hope it's the former. I don't really like biopics. I don't want a remake of I Love Lucy. There's nothing wrong with it. They don't they don't need a remake. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know how it is these days. If you own it and it's just sitting on the shelf, that's money that you're leaving on the table is how everyone seems to be uh, acting about their their intellectual properties these days. Yeah. Uh, The TV series, of course, brought us the ultra iconic statements, which are the kind of things I think that even people that, you know, like these days... Maybe younger people, even if they don't even know that these come from the Mission Impossible series, they've certainly heard things like, uh, as always, should you or any of your force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. And, of course, the amazing, this message will self-destruct. Yeah. (laughs) Those shows were pretty formulaic in structure. But I From think what I remember it was a typical episodic show where it was like this happens and this happens and this happens and you're like wow how did they get out of it you know but it seemed to be pretty much had its own formula to it yeah but I I remember like you know the specific missions the kind of psyops kind of things they did uh you know these elaborate kind of build up a copy of someone's office and, and <laughs> make, you know, knock them out and have them wake up and think, Oh, I'm, I'm in my home or something, but it's actually right. like a replica, uh, weird kind of shit. I, I think the, the watching them plan out their missions was always really fun. And even though there was always the same kind of twist or comp, the same type of twist or complication at the same time, in the episode, uh, I remember always thinking it was cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a neat feature of that show uh, to me was that um, they would choose the team based on the needs of the mission. So you wouldn't necessarily have, you know, the same five people doing every operation because the different people had different talents. Mm-hmm. And so that's always really fun for me, uh, there are a couple cartoon shows, uh, GI Joe and mask, uh, which did that as well. And is something I always like liked about those shows that even like, you know, you knew like the whole roster of characters that GI Joe had access to, but for any given episode, uh, they were picking out like four or five that would, you know, be appropriate. Right. What happened though, 
Oh, and then, and then they also would bring in guest stars if they needed as specialists, if they needed, I don't know, if they needed a, if they needed a safe, I'm just pulling this out of my ass, but like if they needed a safe cracker, they wouldn't just magically say, okay, I guess Leonard Nimoy knows how to crack safes. Uh, <laughs> they, they, if that wasn't in his resume, uh, you know, they'd bring in someone else as, as safe cracker. Over time, over the episodes, though, they kind of strayed away from that and started solidifying more around like a regular repeating cast. And I think we yeah. see this in the I think this, we see this happening in the movies as well. I think six pretty much has the exact same team as five. So I guess it's the same kind of forces that that drive those decisions is just uh, over time, I guess, you know, uh, Simon Pegg just being a hit with audiences, I guess, as uh, Benji, you know, then like, why not bring him back? Right. We mentioned the elaborate kind of psyops that they would do in the show. I think they're more elaborate in the show than they are in the movies, but we, we still do see stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the masks, um, which are like, you know, they have this technology, which doesn't, uh, exist didn't exist in the sixties. Certainly, still doesn't exist now. Where they could have these lifelike masks, where you could perfectly replicate uh, another person, and uh, it's worth yeah, mentioning. Three D printed or something? It wasn't three D printed. It was like three D carved within like two minutes or something. In this movie, yes, I think that's yeah. the only time we see it done that way. Um. It's worth mentioning, you know, the CIA has used masks. Um, yeah, there's a couple at the International Spy Museum. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, but the masks weren't made to look like a specific person. I think it was just to disguise a particular person so that they wouldn't get, get recognized. Right. Versus in this, they're using a mask to be recognized as a person they're not. At very close distances, too. The CIA masks are meant to fool someone observing from maybe, like, I don't know, more than a more than a block away for a I short guess. period of time. <laughs> right. <laughs> the context of this show or of the Mission Impossible movie series itself here, I guess I'm talking about Mission Impossible one for a moment um, is as we've had opportunity to say in other podcast episodes, uh, my personal theory is that uh Jason Bourne and Ethan Hunt, and to a lesser extent, the movie Ronin, are really the things that, um, I mean, Bond was not doing, not performing well uh, uh, as we got to the turn of the millennium anyways. Mm-hmm. But I think, I, I really think it's, it's these movies, it's Bourne, it's Mission Impossible, like I said, to a lesser extent, Ronin that really come in and show like how at least a different way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is what we, what we have now, like our, our style of uh, action spy genre is, is really kind of created by these movies. I would say so. Mission impossible series. Also, it's kind of um, interesting in that uh, it, it, it fields a, a pretty diverse roster of auteur directors, starting with uh, Brian De Palma for the first one, uh, a radical switch to John Woo for the second one, 
this third one we're going to talk a little bit about. This is uh, J.J. Abrams' directorial debut. Uh, originally, it was going to be David Fincher, who brought us like uh, Seven and I believe The Usual Suspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Brad Bird. Uh, his first live action movie was uh, Mission Impossible 4 Ghost Protocol. Uh, did he do animation before that? Yeah, he's the he's the he's Pixar. He's the incredible oh, wow. he's he's the Incredibles guy. Oh wow. And he did Iron Giant. Yeah, Brad Bird, uh, a famous uh Hollywood hyper perfectionist. So uh, we had an opportunity to mention this before when we talked about our Munich, the Munich uh episode of our podcast. Um what happened was uh, Cruz and Spielberg basically totally fell in love with each other while mm-hmm. working on Minority Report in 2002. And they were like, we're going to make all the movies together. Like they were really excited. You know, they really felt like they had met true kindred spirits. And, um, Spielberg was like, what do you want to do? Tom Cruise is like, War of the Worlds, baby! Spielberg's like, fuck yeah! (laughs) Um, But then they started looking at their schedules and they said, oh wait, there's problems. Because we're already signed on to do other stuff. Spielberg was already uh, committed to Munich. Cruise was committed to Mission Impossible 3. Um, But they... uh, they agreed to push those schedules back and so that they could film War of the Worlds, which was actually filmed in a, a shockingly short time scale. I think it was like two months oh, that, wow. that they banged that movie out as far as like the live um, the live photography. Right. So yeah, and then that also meant Munich was done on a on a pretty short recording schedule. They just pulled all the World of the Worlds people right right onto Munich, like the day after they finished uh, War of the Worlds. Mission Impossible Three didn't get its schedule compressed, but it had been pushed back pretty far, um, and it had been pushed back at least that far, and they'd lost Fincher, and then. They wanted J.J. Abrams, who, by the way, they had grabbed to write the script for War of the Worlds, or at least they wanted him to. I think he's, maybe he said he couldn't. Yeah, they asked him to. Um, And then for Mission Impossible 3, he also wasn't available for a while, so it got pushed back even further. The reason I tell this story is because I wanted to talk, like, the entire cast basically got uh, changed up. Um, Kenneth Branagh. Brenna, I've never been a hundred percent sure on that pronunciation. I, and I just said pronunciation. So good on me. Um, was the original villain. Oh, that would have been unfortunate. PSH was such a great villain. PSH, PSH makes this movie. I think we discussed doing Mission Impossible and I was like, no, we have to do MI3. Cause, uh. I'm not as big of a fan of the Mission Impossible franchise as you are for the as far as the films go. Uh-huh. And I was like, PSH played one of the best villains ever. So I was like, we got to do MI3. <laughs> I do think he's one of the best villains ever. I looked at, and we're going to give him a little more time 
a little further down, I think. Well, we could talk about it now. No, let's talk about some PSH. I was I was disappointed uh, when I pulled up some best villain lists of all time. And, I mean, for one thing, I realized, well, it's, like, of all time. So, you know, you're competing against a lot of a lot more people than I realized at first. You know, you got to get that that green witch from Wizard of Oz has got to be on that list somewhere. Right. <laughs> but uh, even on lists of 50, like the 50 best villains of all time, I was disappointed to not see uh, Owen Davian played mm-hmm. by Philip Seymour Hoffman on that, on, on any lists. Yeah. Um, I've got, uh, I did find a, a, you know, a like-minded reviewer out there though. I, I found an article. Uh, I'm going to quote him. So I'll mention that it's uh, Joshua Pease. Uh, and this article was on relevantmagazine.com, where, uh, and his article was called hear me out. Philip Seymour Hoffman was an all time villain. And here's the quote. This is why this is at the end of his little his little spiel. Uh, this is why Hoffman's Davian belongs as one of the all-time great villains. There's nothing compelling or charming or erudite about him. He's just a brutal, inhumane wrecking ball who can't be reasoned with. He does not care a, at all about the trivialities and decencies of human existence. He's just mean and driven and pitiless. You would never watch this movie and feel seduced by Davian, but that makes you fear him even more because evil's banality makes it more terrifying, not less. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. (laughs) I'm glad it's much, yeah, it's much better uh, than I could put it. Um, He is doing a lot with a little. I think uh, if you just look at his existence on the script pages, all the stuff that makes this performance so fucking incredible, like they're not there. It's not in the script. It's all him. Mm -hmm. He's actually got not a lot really to do in this movie as, as a character. Yeah. And um, yeah, backing up uh, Joshua as well. Um, you know, there's somebody had put this theory out that I, I heard like a year ago that I liked. There's, there's two kinds of villains. There's the kind that, which I think is kind of the more common kind. That's a little bit, at least a little bit sexy. There's someone that even if you know, they're a bad person, you kind of, you kind of feel like you would maybe enjoy having a drink with them. Maybe some part of you like kind of wants them to like you somehow. You know, there's like he says, there's a seductive element to to a lot of villains. And this person was saying, there's there's like that kind of person. There's there's that kind of villain, and then the other kind is the one that you wouldn't want to spend one fucking second in their presence because they're just <laughs> they're just terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Guess which kind PSH is. I'd, I'd go with the latter on that one. <laughs> now it gets even better. Actually, I said I said Brenna was the original villain. Actually, I'm not sure that he was technically the original because I also found out Sylvester Stallone briefly con- briefly considered for this role. Um, that would have also been unfortunate. <laughs> 
I still want to see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Don't take anything off of, off of PSH's resume, but uh, I would love to have seen, I would really like to have seen Stallone tackle something like this. Mm-hmm. Who else did we lose? We lost Carrie on Carrie Ann Moss. Mm-hmm. And Scarlett Johansson, uh, Carrie Ann Moss, I've long been on record lamenting the the brevity of her resume. Mm-hmm. I've seen other people say the thing, same thing, like, why the hell didn't she make 20 other movies? People don't seem to know. It just seems to have maybe just been a personal choice on her part. I think she absolutely had uh, drawing power on a billboard. Once, once we got to know her in the Matrix and Memento, uh, I don't know for sure. I'm gonna assume Carrie Ann Moss was playing uh, the the captured agent, and that Scarlett Johansson was the girlfriend. You think that makes more sense than the other way around, right? Uh, yeah. I could see Scarlett doing either. I can't see Carrie Ann Moss playing the um the damsel in distress right uh fiance of of Ethan Hunt but yeah maybe and Benji this is uh Simon Pegg's first appearance in this franchise and also it's his first Hollywood movie oh really mhm that role came to him after the delays caused Ricky Gervais to walk away. Uh, Ricky Gervais, I think, would have been fine. Would have been real fine. Oh, as Simon Pegg's character? Sure. Yeah, I could have seen that. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, you write the lines maybe a little differently, maybe. But maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. I think Simon Pegg would have play, plays a better... You know, uh, antsy, quirky type of character than Ricky Gervais would. Yeah, but it could be. I could still see maybe just the exact same lines just coming out of Ricky with, Gervais's mouth <laughs> with with a different flavor. You know, you wouldn't get that. You wouldn't yeah. necessarily get that antsy thing. You'd get that kind of slightly pissed off and put upon. Yeah. Um, energy from yeah. from yeah from Gervais. We did have a repeat though with Billy Crudup. Um, I think when we had talked about this, uh, I misunderstood. I thought he was the character that is supposed to be Richard Helms. He actually was uh, Kim Philby, the character Arch Cummings that was supposed to be the Kim Philby uh, parallel character, or whatever, in Good Shepherd. In the Good Shepherd, that's right. Yeah, uh, we're bringing back uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is also a repeat, right? Due to, uh, well, he was in the most wanted man. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh shit! Yeah. You know, uh, two nights ago, someone was asking me what my three favorite spy movies were, and I think, I, I think most wanted man should have been on that list. Uh, yeah, well, we love doing it on the show, and uh, I, I think yeah, it's definitely uh, a must watch if you're in if you're into the genre. Last note on the cast, 
Ving Rhames as Luther is the only character besides Ethan to appear in all six films. Yeah, he was he was great. I like him. Placement in the franchise. So, um, not to give Rotten Tomatoes too much credit, but I just wanted to look at a, like some brief numbers that say like where where this one stands. Um, Mission Impossible One is decently received. Two is largely, I liked it. yeah, no, yeah, one is yeah, good. One. Yeah, one is good. Um, two is uh, just considered by everyone to be the stinker in the franchise. I don't think I I like it <laughs> more than other people, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I might be a fan club of one uh, on that one. Uh, it's Mission Impossible 3 that a lot of people say, no, this is where it turns around. This is where it turns around and starts to soar. And also, I think Mission Impossible 3 is the one where that sets the template for what 4, 5, and 6 are going to be like. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's one, one is its own animal. Two is definitely its own animal. Three, four, five, six feel more of a piece, like more of a, we've, we've decided what our formula is. We've decided what lane we're running in. Uh, but by comparison, four, five, and six are just like mega hits compared right. to uh, any of the movies uh, that come before. It took less than half as much money in at the box office uh, than then the most recent one, Fallout. Uh-huh. And uh, it is actually the lowest grossing film in the series. MI3? MI3. Wow. Pro- <laughs> probably Fallout from 2, I, I would guess. If people right. disliked 2 that much, then maybe it just people didn't get excited to go out and see 3. Yeah, um, right, exactly. But I, I'd say, I'd, I mean, I'd, I'd agree. It's, it's like you know the, the runt of the three, four, five, six litter, but, uh-huh. but not, not by much, not by much. This is, this is a pretty good movie. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. I'm fairly confident that out of all the movies. This is the only one where we really spend any time with uh, with uh, Tom with Ethan Hunt off the job. Uh, he's supposedly retired from field work. Uh, he's using the cover. Well, retired from field work. He's still training IMF agents, but he hasn't told his girlfriend that his fiance and right. his cover is a nice and super intentionally boring traffic analyst (laughs) so that if anybody asks him about what he does for a living uh he can pretty much count on them absolutely losing interest within you know 10 seconds of him opening his mouth and so for me i'd be like really (laughs) what an odd position tell me all about it and i'd ask a very in intuitive questions traffic it's like an organism it's got a mind of its own actually yeah. i would be i i gotta admit i would actually be really interested in hearing more about traffic patterns yeah. as well yeah, me too yeah <laughs> uh, 
That is not a cover for someone like us. That's a cover for like just some rando at like a cocktail bar or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they lather on a whole bunch of heartwarming stuff to establish the importance of Julia. That's all important so that, uh, you know, we set the stakes of the movie very high. I like me some code phrases yeah. uh, in, in general. Uh, this one that, that uh, you know, uh, makes contact with him, lets him know, like, hey, you know, we got to talk is, uh, yeah. is a nice telemarketer thing. You know, like you've, you've won a trip to Mexico. Uh, the thing that most people would just hang up. That's, I, I give plus five points. It's a nice... I, I, it might be a little, I was a little worried because it was kind of like, well, I get a lot of those calls. You want a free trip to like blah, blah, blah. Uh, Mexico would actually be one that one. Well, they probably would have said Cancun. So just saying Mexico, making it that general. Oh, right. Because, well, I mean, but I thought about that. Like, what's the worst case scenario is if he gets a, a, a call from a real telemarketer? That happens right. to be like kind of the same as his code phrase. You know, right. he, he wasted a trip to Seven Eleven. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Make it make it specific. Make it Cancun. Right. Or something. Um, yeah. No, I'm saying that it's great that they didn't make it specific because if it was a real tell Marco, they would have been like Cancun or something. Okay. You know. Oh. Okay. Uh, and the fact that they said Mexico. What does that mean? Like, you know, it's kind of like uh, if someone had called me, like, "You want a trip to Europe?" Like, okay, where? The Europe's kind of a big, you know. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're right. You're right. Yeah. You know, he's, he's going to go to Seven Eleven. He's going to meet with Credit. Uh, I thought they spent a little too much time standing next to each other. Uh, a little more than than I would have liked, but yeah, not enough to give it minus five points. Um, he's going to turn. Ethan onto the camera situation and I'm going to let you take that. Yeah. That, uh, made my number two best trade craft. Uh, just cause it was actually a dead drop. That was nice. Uh, I liked that. And he kind of flicked the camera that was first on the hanger thingies to like kind of point out to Ethan, Hey, this is what you need to pick up. So I, I enjoyed it. I, I, but I, again, uh, there wasn't a whole lot to pull from, so I, I, I kind of like this one because we actually got a, a nice dead drop out of it. Uh, but it it turns out to be the disposable camera has like a video file, and this is our uh, typical Mission Impossible like your mission if you choose to accept it, you know, uh, you know, and then and then the camera self destructs. Right in the TV series, it was always a tape, right. uh, but in the movies, it's it's always a, a different. Uh, kind of gadget or 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 technique or it's it's disguised better <laughs> than a tape uh, in the movies and yeah this this was a cute one um, yeah I liked it but I mean like I think we both discussed this wasn't an impossible mission for him so you know using using this as like a Ah, your mission, if you, like, choose to accept it, like, this this wasn't as big of a deal as we would have liked for something, like, this cool with a disposable camera. Yeah, well, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is just part of the language of the franchise. It's kind of like Bond, James Bond, even if it's stupid, which it is. 
which it is, <laughs> right? Uh, you have to do it. You've cornered yourself into it. Um, but thinking this one through, uh, you know, well, I started with, you know, thinking about them interrupting his engagement party and thinking that, okay, so that, I mean, that's not ideal. So mm -hmm. this must be like very time critical. Right. But if it's so time critical, the, if you choose to accept it part doesn't fly. Right. Like you, you gotta, you gotta go. Like there's no... Are you taking the mission or not? Yeah. And also like there's there's no reason to you know, they're they're I, I assume they know because the person that's been captured, the Carrie Russell character, is I don't know, kinda like Ethan's protege. Mm -hmm. Uh they know him well enough that he's gonna accept. So right. I get I get that, you know, even though they're saying if you choose to accept it, I will go ahead and give them the benefit of the doubt that they know him well enough that they know he's going to say yes. Right. But it's still, the reason that it's minus five points for me is, as you said, there's no reason for them to use Ethan on this op. No. Like, they, it's you a, know. It's like an extra, it's an exfiltration mission that they probably would have had, like, some elite SWAT type guys come in and get her out, right? Right. There's not even a, a real reason for them to use, to do it as an IMF mission. Right. Um, either on its face or for any deeper secret purpose. Like there's no, even though like there's some, definitely some uh, shady, secretive, deeper meaning shit going on. None of it benefits from dragging Ethan into this situation. In right. fact, he's, he's probably the worst guy you want because you know, he's Ethan Hunt. He's going to figure your shit out. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So we've got our mission. The mission is to get Carrie Russell back. Um, let's start by saying, as far as I can tell, this part of the plot can be entirely segregated from the main rabbit's foot plot. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't see anything that happens here that affects the rest of the movie except to give Ethan a vendetta. Right. And even then, his wife being taken hostage is all he really needs. So, yeah, this doesn't really need anything. Other than to really, I guess, set up the brain explosive. But they could have done that anyway. Uh, right? Right. Uh, yeah. you know, I did give mark it that as my number three best tradecraft. Uh, mainly because I didn't really have a whole lot to pick from. But I, I liked the brain explosive... Uh, as like kind of like an insurance policy. Like if you have someone detained, you can get info from them. And if they get away, you could always, in case they got info from you. I don't know. I, I, I liked it. It was a cool mechanic in the movie. Uh, but you're right. This whole entire uh, plot line doesn't need to exist. I mean, it actually uh, holds up like bar barely. Uh, and, and there are a few jumps that we have to make, a few assumptions we have to make to make it hold together, like the whole uh, background, like what's going on in the background kind of stuff with the villains. Um, right. But sincerely, most of the events in this movie are, are story motivated rather than plot motivated. Uh, you know, they serve to give us big 
you know, to, to establish stakes, you know, to mm. do like drama stuff, to establish stakes, to give us big uh, uh, emotional investment in scenes to, to mm. really get the characters like really, really, really not liking each other. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, you know, blowing up, you know, having Tom Cruise or Ethan Hunt fail to uh, save Carrie Russell from the brain bomb. Right. Uh, it's really just there to make it so that he will go nut sauce on PSH later, mm-hmm. which will in turn make PSH decide like you need to pay for that shit because I didn't appreciate it at all. Right. So what was going on before the movie started was Carrie Russell was investigating PSH. I mean, he's, he's, he's on their radar. Uh, even though like Fishburne says like, he's a damn invisible man. Uh, (laughs) apparently they were on his case, uh, from anything I can see that is that she was working alone. I mean, we didn't see it in the movie. We didn't see her get captured. That happened before. That would be my guess. She was just on the field, you know? Yeah. And that's one of David's rules. That'll get you some minus five points, which we can't (laughs) assign because we didn't see it. Right. We still didn't see it. I presume she had a team, right? David doesn't like it when you when you work alone. He right. he wants you to always have a team. Yeah. Um, but maybe she did, and we just don't know what happened to them. But like, even Ethan Hunt has his team. When when has he ever gone solo? He does he, crazy shit by himself, but he still has a team. You know what I mean? I think he pretty much goes solo in two, and that was I think one of the reasons people didn't like it as much. Oh. I think okay. in two, he's pretty much a lone superhero. Uh, kind of guy, and he's kind of, kind of. Well, he's 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 on his own in one, but for raisins, you know, right. <laughs> his team got killed. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, she was investigating PSH, and we'll find out later in the film that she noticed that he got a call from Lawrence Fishburne's office. Lawrence Fishburne is playing the director of the IMF in this movie. Um, that call didn't actually come from Fishburne. It came from Crudup. Right. And he was making that call to uh, basically alert PSH uh, about Carrie Russell so that PSH could capture her. So he's betraying her over there. Why is he doing this stuff? Let's hear it. Well, I think he's trying to throw Fishburne born under the bus because later on when we discover Crudup's like the real traitor, he's like, well, okay, well, hold on. Carrie Russell had been telling Ethan Hunt that she got a call. She noticed a call to uh, PSH from Fishburne's office. So the idea is that Fishburne's the traitor working with Owens. But later on, we find out Crudup is like interrogating Ethan Hunt and was like, did everybody buy the story? Did she mention me? You know, so the, I guess the logic the movie wants us to think is that Crudup is throwing Fishburne under the bus by throwing Carrie Russell under the bus. And Crudup's explanation for why he put her in danger was because he was like, I thought you could get her out. And then she died. Uh, a lot of that's super shaky. And it took Todd and I some mental gymnastics to get to, but I... Uh, uh, one thing I don't, I don't one thing I don't like is when uh villains or anyone really uh takes credit for 
uh, something that was just circumstance or serendipitous. Uh, right. So, I mean, she tagged, she tagged PSH's phone so she could see what calls he was getting. Mm-hmm. And that's how she noticed the call came from uh, Fishburne's office. Now, did Credup know that? Well, that's what I'm saying. Later on, he was like, what was the message? She So I don't think he knew what she told him, but it, it seemed to me he was implying, he was like, did everybody believe, you know, the story that she told? Right, did she the... mention anything about me? So I think he planned her to learn that information and was hoping that's what she had told him, but he wasn't sure. So he was like, she didn't mention anything about me, did she? Right. But how does he, is it really part of a plan? If it's just, I'll make a call from Fishburne's office and hope that she notices that. Right. Then that's, that's bullshit. Oh, I agree. I I agree. Um, And it's what, but it's one of the short gaps. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't call it gymnastics that we need to do with this plot. It's just, there's a bunch of short hops that you can make with not a whole lot of effort. Credit might have been running Carrie Russell's, um, you know, operation. Mm-hmm. He might know that she had tagged PSH's phone. He might know that she will is actively monitoring the calls that he gets. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's just a short hop. Um, but you know, like I said, it's 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 not there. Um, at least, you know, we, we don't have proof that it's there. Uh, I think his primary motivation here is just to protect his asset, uh, PSH. And just simply by doing that, by making the call from Fishburne's office, accomplishes a few very logical things. Uh, it covers his tracks a bit. Uh, it plants a possible other trader theory for people to chase if they if anybody does start suspecting that there's a traitor involved mm-hmm. and uh, you know, he makes it clear at the end of the movie, he doesn't think Fishburne being the head of IMF is good for the country. So um, I think, I think even if he's just, even if he's just playing the odds, right. I mean, yeah, it's, it's possible. Well, like you said, did he buy the story? So I can make that short hop that he knew she was monitoring the stuff uh, he's getting a lot done here with mm-hmm. one phone call. Even, even if it doesn't all like play out, he's playing the odds pretty well. I'm going right. to give him uh plus spy points and my number three best, uh, for this play. Yeah. I, I think throwing shade on Fishburne is a really good play. So that's a, that's a good one to spot. Again, I don't think Fishburne going under the bus is his primary motivation. I think he's just playing the odds. Uh, which is good um, because if she ends up dead, then it doesn't matter uh, who placed the call kind of, at least mm-hmm. as far as he knows. But if she ends up uh, coming back alive with her information about the call, having come from Fishburne's office, that definitely plays right into his hands. So mm-hmm. this again, makes sense that he's betraying her to PSH but then also sending Ethan in to rescue her. Cause maybe he's, cause he's not that he's not 
he's not a super evil guy. He's, right. uh, it's kind of the situation we had in Tinker Taylor, right? Where, uh, who was our, who's, who turns out to be the mole in that one? Oh, Colin Firth. Right. And didn't he feel bad about throwing Mark Strong under the bus? And so he tried to like kind of make amends, even though he had to do it for his mission, but he didn't feel good about Mark Strong. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. he was like working for the other team. Crudup is kind of playing the this is a necessary evil. We're using Owens. Like he's not really working for PSH. He's kind of like using him. Using like, him for sure. Owens, Owens is a weed. If you get rid of him, someone else like him will pop up, type of thing. You know. But yeah, you're right. Like he he was like, I have to do this, so I'm going to throw under the bus, knowing Ethan Hunt's going to get her out. His best his best possible outcome is she gets captured and then she gets rescued with a story about Fishburn. In the his medium uh, outcome is she gets killed. But I'm saying also, like, he might not want that to happen because he's loyal to the government. I don't think he's the kind of person that's throwing America, you know, his his thing seems to be loyalty to the country, like misguided loyalty to the United States. I think he is the kind of person that even if he had to throw a, a United States intelligence personnel under the bus to accomplish a goal, but could still save that person's life or rescue that person and still get his, you know, have his cake and eat it too, that he would, that he would. Right. Right. You alluded to this before, but I wanted to put some more meat on this bone. Uh, This mission is not a mission impossible. Right. This is a straight, like just go in, shoot people and grab someone mission. When we talk about mission impossibles, we're talking more about like, the shit we're going to do in the Vatican later. Yeah. yeah. You know, or elab- in, the China- in the Chinese skyscraper, elaborate like, 3d chess kind of things, you know, with everyone heist movie kind of vibes where everyone's got to be in position at the right time and mm. psyops and weird fucking masks. This is just go in, shoot everyone and grab the girl. Yeah. Uh, the only, the only, even remotely clever thing that they do is have Luther hack into the anti-air guns, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't even know why they have anti-air guns around this factory, but okay. <laughs> um, and you know that, okay. So yeah, that's a kind of a mission impossible kind of thing, but it wouldn't have been necessary if you had just done this, like the normal way you would do it, which is send like what? Like 30, 40 SWAT guys. Yeah. You know, just call call Berlin. Call it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're missing, you know, we'll send over some consultants and shit, but, uh, you know, help us out. You're our ally. So, um, you know, it's like the only reason the AA guns are even necessary is because they want to do it with a Ethan going in full fucking solo. I'll call it mm-hmm. minus five points. Definitely. I completely agree. I, I I don't I don't know why they were sent in to begin with. Yeah, I think you know it goes back again to like everything in this movie is like very like story first, plot second in this movie. Um, you know, even though we'll find out about this in like drips and pieces throughout the movie, uh, I wanted to complain a little bit about 
Carrie Russell's message being overly secretive. She's worried about Fishburne. We mm-hmm. established that. This is what she does about it. She sends a postcard to uh, an alias of Ethan Hunt, which is actually clever because when he answers the phone, like they say, is this Mr. Kelvin? And uh, he says, yes. And that must be a signal to him. Like this is a, uh, like that must tell him something. Plus a little plus mm-hmm. five points for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the postcard goes to a post office again in Virginia where there's no message, which I thought was a little weird. Like, maybe it would be better cover if you wrote like a cheerful little, Hey, we went and saw the, the Brandenburg gate today. Wish you were here. Um, but instead it's just blank and, uh, she's hidden a micro dot under a stamp. I, I can, I can believe him looking under the stamp. I can, I think those are good moves. It goes one step too far though, where that micro dot is blank and uh, they have to guess that maybe it's magnetically encoded. Mm -hmm. And even that only brings them to the point where Luther, who's supposed to be our master hacker, even his best option is to say, I might know a guy that, that can decode this if it's magnetic. So there's like, just like, I appreciate and give it like some plus spy points for uh, like the chain of events that need to happen for the message to be delivered securely. Mm-hmm. But it's like one step too much for it to be like for the encoding to be so difficult to suss out. So I'm giving it some plus spy points and then some minus spy points. And having said that, I can move to the Vatican if you're ready. Yeah. All right, let's have you uh, lead us in on this one. How'd you like the? Uh, how do you how do you want to tackle it? You want to do piece by piece, or there's there's a lot here. Um, well, I think it's good to kind of figure out. We should talk about how they even figured out about the Vatican because we just saw a whole speech from Lawrence Fishburne about how he's been hunting Owens his whole life. And the man is a ghost. He's an invisible man. He provides, he provides, he's laughing at us. We just showed him off this failed mission that he's, he's as good as he thinks he is. Um, and then uh, I think it was Crudup says, well, we recovered two laptops. And then the tech people were like, oh, they're crispy, nothing to get. But Simon Pegg manages to get a little bit of info of emails that had been sent out. And it looks like, that is the way that we found out that Owens is going to be at the Vatican. Uh, so it was kind of like an accident. And, you know, I mean, it's very, it's very, it's very, it's very much an accident. Cause you can't control like what, you know, those, those laptops getting like basically holes blown in them. Right. Uh, so, so that tells us that the, like nobody planned for, Ethan to get this information about PSH going to the Vatican to get right. and something about the rabbit's foot. Right. And 850 million, which right. uh, is apparently a lot of money. It's Simon Pegg. This is kind of how he's established as like a super techie guy. Like, 
and and so just using forensics he was able to like pull out this data and it just so happened like you said that it was the right data for the movie you know <laughs> so this happens right. a lot in this type of movie where it just so happens it's the right piece of information mm-hmm. story not plot right um and and along that line uh ethan having found out about the Vatican meeting and suppose, so supposedly like PSH is so fucking hard to find that even just knowing that he's going to be at one location on one certain day is like, that's something we got to move on. Like we, we have to, um, kind of falls a little apart, you know, cause Carrie Russell was tracking him earlier, but, uh, uh, we'll leave that. But the one I wanted to mention was that, um, you know, Ethan making his own decision. I'm going to go nab PSH mm. from this uh, Vatican meeting. Uh, he says he specifically wants to leave Crudup out of the loop. The The excuse he gave, gives on screen is I want him to have deniability. Right. I don't think that's the real reason. I think the real reason is because the when we find out at the end of the movie that Crudup and PSH are working together, we would have had, we would have possibly, you and me would have come back and said, well, wait a second. Then why didn't Crudup warn PSH about the Vatican extraction? So mm-hmm. I think they're just, again, just covering their butts a little by, by having that happen. Right. Uh, there's a, like I said, there's a ton, you know, the Vatican extraction is very intricate and, and we can't go through, we can't go through beat for beat about every little detail about it. Let's just, uh, maybe hit some highlights. Um, I want to start with a, yeah, they start out with like what blocking traffic on a one way road, which was kind of a good idea. Um, right. I, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was decent. You know? Yeah, I like I liked it. Um, uh, I'm not sure why they needed to block traffic though. Wouldn't other people across the street see him or something? Well, it's after they block traffic, Ethan is able to move like several blocks down and be able to uh, scale the wall unobserved. That's what I'm saying. Aren't there buildings across the street? I guess, yeah. And people walking, or I mean, I, mean, I guess no one, no random person that lives across the street. Is gonna well unless since it's a high target. I don't know, I don't know. But I, I liked it. It was fun. You get like a cute little scene that uh, of like just people arguing on the street mm-hmm. in Italian. Um, <laughs> we've seen this kind of faking the camera out uh, uh, before. Um, mm-hmm. You know where you put a you take a picture, you put a still picture of mm-hmm. the you know of the hallway or whatever uh, in front of the camera. Um, I wonder someday maybe I'm going to have to do some research on whether, whether or not that actually fucking works in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, as far as getting over the wall, uh, just a a factual error that came to my attention while doing the research for this podcast. Uh, the walls of the Vatican are actually guarded by human beings, not cameras. Oh, well, that throws that whole thing out of the wall. Uh, but my favorite parts of of this, like just the getting over the wall thing. I mean, besides, like you know, it's cool seeing Tom Cruise like just running vertically, 
mm-hmm. you know, because we like to watch Tom Cruise run. Um, I I really like the the him using the rangefinder to to find out exactly how far to drop on the other right. side, right. and yeah, cool. and you know they had him they showed him like switch his belt because remember when he climbs up the wall he needs the the cord to be in front of his belly button. And they show him sw- slide it around so that when he drops down, switches into his, what what do you call him? priest outfit? Or, you know, priest outfit that's underneath his DHS oh, outfit. Yeah. Uh, that uh, the clothes yeah. just get, like, automatically, like, rewound, like, back up to the top of the wall. Um, yeah. I, I liked that. And I'll also, uh, you know, I'm just dribbling out little pennies and nickels of plus five points on this stuff really um you know but also like the dhs uniform uh you know it's it's kind of sort of the same color as the wall mm-hmm. so when he's lying up there you know he's he's you know like you know i don't know if they have ups in rome right but like the dhs outfit is a better choice than you know FedEx. A FedEx okay. uniform or a UPS uniform or an Amazon Prime blue kind of uniform. Yeah. It's, you know, it kind of, it's, it's semi camouflage. Yeah. <laughs> Tiny little spy points for you guys there. Um, minus spy points for uh, them not investigating the camera glitch, but that's just standard for spy movies, right? Right. Pretty much. Have we ever seen anybody in the, in the observation room? say physically or have someone go physically check the camera yeah say like hey you know like we were out for five seconds somebody go take a look at that thing yeah (laughs) i don't know Uh, if we have but if we did i'm I'm sure tom cruise would just like snap their neck and right and then move on yeah (laughs) right I mean, if we're going to talk about what we didn't like about the Vatican, I, I, I don't know. I'll talk about this a little bit more later, but my number one worst tradecraft is the Vatican op entirely. Um, uh, we kind of avoided, you know, some things that were low-hanging fruit for worst tradecraft. So I try to be really critical about some of these things. And number one, there's no reason to go through all this work other than to make a big-budget summer blockbuster film. Uh, there's no reason to infiltrate the Vatican for this particular op. Just wait till PSH leaves the building and then follow him and catch him in a very like insecure area. You know, it's, it's kind of like any, any of these movies like are in just in reality, anytime there's like a kidnapping or like an assassination, it's, it's never going to be at the white house. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Yeah. we've, we've, We've criticized other movies about this. Red comes yeah. to mind. Right, exactly. Like, why are you going to go into Langley? There's no reason to do that. Like, the the high security there, like, for, like if there's a reason for you to have to break into the Vatican, okay, right? Like, you're a thief trying to steal, like, some painting or something, and there's no other place, right? It's not going to leave the Vatican, right? You know, or, like, if to break someone out of prison, they're physically in that prison. You don't have an option, right? Mm-hmm. You know, well, actually, a lot of prison breaks aren't even out of the prison. It's when they get transferred. Right. You, you know, know, like choosing this, choosing the lowest security, like the, you know, whatever the, the, the target is, 
you know, there's a process you should go through to figure out where security would be weakest and, right. and less focused, right. which runs antithetical to the Hollywood purpose of making an action spy movie where we always want to go at them when they're the most secure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and that's why I'm saying it was specifically just to make a giant blockbuster movie. Um, uh, but given that, uh, we can definitely talk about some of the cool stuff they did to get in and out of the Vatican. And I think my number one best trade craft, uh, even, though, even though you flagged Jonathan Reese Myers for going through like a bunch of costume changes, which was great. I had to um, check. I, no, I, well, hey, let me give me this one. Yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead and take it. Right. Um, you know, because I think I gave Malkovich, I think I gave him one of my best tradecrafts in red yeah, for, right. for using three costumes in one op. Right. I had to go back and check the number because in my memory, I thought it might have been four. And uh-huh. so I thought that Jonathan Reese Myers was was not not quite reaching that goal. But nope, it's a tie. Three costumes in one up. Jonathan nice. Reese Myers and John Malkovich. <laughs> uh, well, uh, my number one tradecraft is related to one of his costumes. He dresses up like a guard uh, because uh, Maggie Q has to get in the building and she's uh, driving a, a very expensive Lamborghini dressed in a very, very uh, uh, sexy red dress that probably is like some high fashion expensive dress. The guard won't let her in, despite looking super fancy or whatever. She's not on the list or whatever. Well, Jonathan Reese Myers shows up to the gate as a guard and is like, hey, this is, uh, you know, whoever. It's very important she gets in. So uh, that was, I think, my number one best tradecraft was uh, using the team to kind of um, authenticate who she was and get her in the building so that they could get the entire team in the building, you know. Despite all of these overwhelmingly high exorbitant uh, feats that they do to get in the building, they needed her specifically for the wine spilling. So she had to look like a fancy guest, you know, somebody important, right? right? It's important. It's in. It, she needs to accomplish at least two goals here. Uh, she needs to get there in style so right, that she exactly. can pass. And right. it 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 would. I mean. I could see some movies doing it and maybe this wasn't some part of their thought process in this movie, but like it would beg her belief for her to like climb in through the sewers like Luther does. Right. Exactly. And and then just, and then just get all dolled up and be able to pass as you know, the super hoity toity um, that she does. And then the other objective is they have to get the car into the, in through the Oh, that's right. Because that's going to be car. They need the car for the escape. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So all of that together made my number one best trade craft. Fantastic. Uh, I I thought it was, yeah, I I liked it. Yeah. It was fun. A minor one, but I wanted to mention it like Reese Myers, uh, firing the, the tracer at the manhole cover Mm -hmm. through his camera is that's, that's plus spy points. I think anytime you're going to have to do some shit like that in public, you know, especially when it's a a, a huge like tourist destination, mm-hmm. um, kind of sorta in the way that um, you know De Niro uses a camera very effectively in Ronin. Right. Uh, you know, when when you can 
if you if you need to like you know get surveillance or do one of these tricky like super mission impossible spy kind of stuff like uh you know if you need to obviously be pointing an object at something uh a camera in a tourist location is really really good choice i like, I like that too any type of decoy that they use in in these type of movies is always a plus for me <laughs> I guess it's time to talk a little bit about masks. Yeah. And uh, we talked about them a little pre-briefing room. Uh, The CIA has used masks to fool people at a distance. We're going to go ahead and assume within this universe, this alternate Mission Impossible universe, Mm. where Tom Cruise is faster than bullets. (laughs) (laughs) And they have these super masks. Uh, We'll talk instead about the way they're used. Uh, you know, so we'll, we're we're taking it as given. The masks exist, right? Starting from there, uh, as we say, this is one where they not three D print, but kind of three D carve. It's a little. It's sort of like three D printing slightly. You know, well, they had it, like a base mask, and then like these laser thingies based on an image they like uploaded to it, started carving the mask. Mm -hmm. So it's not like 3d printing where they're using like materials that are being printed. Like, like, yeah. Stacked onto each other, like molecule by molecule. Right. Exactly. They're, they're like kind of taking like a base piece and like carving it, I guess with these lasers, it was a little over the top for me. It was, it was kind of cool for the movie, I guess, but it was a little over the top for me. That's why that's why I will say even if you ask me to accept these masks exist, uh, I think we'll give it some minus spy points for the speed at which we're expected to imagine that they could construct this one. And you know? accuracy within that speed. You know, it, he's, he's supposed to look exactly like PSH. But right. So even, even in this universe where I believe the masks exist... I think this mask should take like a month to construct. <laughs> right. It's not like, yeah, it was kind of, uh, and you would and think then, somebody would have had some, fr- I guess no one had actual pictures of Owens. Is that appar- what I'm Well, to apparently be? not because he's the invisible man. Oh, well that's true. Yeah. And, and so that's why Maggie Q also needs to scan his face surreptitiously with their little compact. Right. Um, right. Another which, reason why she had to come in with style, you know. Uh, but the speed at which she does that, you know, just like he's he's walking through the room in the party, like getting that kind of accuracy, you know, on the detail of his face that would be needed is that's right. no good. And then finally, like the little voice changer thingy, you know, it's it's I think we saw it in first in two, maybe it was in one, but they can just change their voice with the little right. strip on their on their stri- on their throat. Mm-hmm. That's pretty ridiculous as well. Uh, I actually kind of wanted to bring that up. Not the tech itself, because we're already suspending a large amount of disbelief with a lot of the tech in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, since we tried to avoid low-hanging fruit, I, I really held PSH to the highest critique. Because we were already sold by Fishburne that he is a ghost. He's an invisible man. He can't get him. The IMF has never been able to get him. We accidentally find out information he's going to be at the Vatican. We're able to identify him somehow. 
I'm not sure how they do that without any previous images of him, but we know he's going to be there. Uh, we finally identify him, take pictures, and there's two moments that I kind of want to discuss, and one of them has to do with the words. Uh, so before I get into that, I want to talk about the wine. Uh, we have Maggie Q come up and bump into him and spill wine. Very typical spy film. Ooh, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I messed up your shirt. Oh, I got to go to the bathroom now and wash off my shirt. I think when we were watching this, I'd mentioned this. Could you imagine, like, being a VIP and just people spill drinks on you, like, all the fucking time? You know? Like, it, it, it seems to me like this is such a, like, cliche way of, like, getting something to happen that I wonder if in real life, if you're, like, somebody with, like, a high clearance or just, like, knows a lot of important intel, people just start spilling drinks on you, like, every day. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, so so um, I I kind of I, I like I like the spilling the drink thing. It's very cool, um, and and I think this. Oh well, I guess this was your number one best. You, you go ahead. You go ahead and finish complaining about it. I'll come. Yeah, I'll come swoop gonna, in when you're when you're done to defend it. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna complain about the wine spilling itself. I'm complaining about PSH, who has he's supposed to be a super like elusive person that just knows about all this stuff. Right. So I would one, I would like to hope he'd have guards that were competent enough to not let anybody accidentally bump into him, you know, considering the, the tech they have. Uh, I mean, like, like watching that Spycraft uh, documentary, there's been like poisons and shit just rubbing on people's hands. So for him to like one, not have competent guards to make sure no one just bumps into him, but two, Having someone spill wine on you and be like, oh, now I got to go clean my shirt by myself. Like, even though this is like the most quintessential spy moment in like probably spy film history, I would like to think like a guy at this caliber would be like, oh, that probably was someone trying to get me to go to the bathroom by myself. Maybe I shouldn't go to the bathroom by myself. <laughs> you know, like, uh, which leads me into the voice thing. You know what I mean? He would know about this tech being that high level of a supervillain or whatever. If if somebody bumped my head, even after I, I was ignored the fact that someone just spilled wine on me, going back into the bathroom by myself and some guy takes me down to the ground looking exactly like me and wants me to read a, words on a card, I tell him to go fuck himself. Because I probably would realize, oh, he's trying to impersonate me and use that tech that we saw in Mission Impossible 1 and I'm already aware of because I am the super villain PSH. You know. Anyway, those are my gripes. Uh, worst tradecraft number two, falling for the wine. Worst tradecraft number three was PSH reading the words. Uh, anyway, you defend the wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, you know, because it's the last thing you were talking about. I, I'm, I'm actually going to defend the reading the text on the card. Okay. as probably the most fun part of the process, I think. Uh -huh. And right. the fact that it took time to process, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the computer system, mm -hmm. uh, fun as well. I no. So you're complaining that he complies. Correct. Well, I guess as far as the movie, it's fun for the movie, right? I'm, it's def I'm, yeah. def I'm defending the, you know, again, if we're within this ridiculous universe where this technology exists, this was, I thought, the most... Uh, a plausible part of it, you know, because okay. everything else was so easy, you know, like uh, 
scanning his face with a tiny little compact, you right. know, uh, where also like, you know, I, I don't know, I guess it's maybe got a secure Bluetooth connection to the thing, uh, whatever, right. uh, you know, <laughs> uh, carving the mask out and painting it perfectly so fast. Uh, you know, just ridiculous. Like, at least this was like a stumbling block. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in in <laughs> the see. process. I see what you mean. Yeah. Like, it was, I felt like it was the only nod to this. This isn't just fucking hands down easy. There, right. there are complications involved. Right. <laughs> um, but over to the wine, uh, this is actually, okay, so. Again, and I totally, dude, I totally feel you. And thank you for bringing it up. Like this is a trope, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's and and it's and it's a bit of a tired one. Um, but uh, I'm going to number one best with the again looking at it from the IMF side, right. um, because the spill has like a double function. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to get him to the bathroom. But it's also going to give that great excuse for her to flirt with him for Maggie Q. It's it's her also her great excuse her in to making her apology thing and flirting with him uh, to to separate P not not PSH but Ethan pretending to be PSH from his guards. Right. I actually thought that bit of the wine spill part of it was maybe the best legit piece of tradecraft in this oh, operation. Yeah, that was okay. great. Let's cut it here. We have talked about the first op in Berlin, which certainly was not a Mission Impossible op, and the second, Vatican op, which was much more in line with classic Mission Impossible style. In part two, we'll be talking about the fallout and implications of the Vatican op, as well as the rest of the film. Before we say goodnight to you, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or on your favorite podcast app. But you know what really helps us out? Mention this podcast to a friend that you think might like it. That's your mission, should you choose to accept it. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.